This is a Federal News Network podcast. Union arbitrators routinely reinstate fired federal employees who grieve their dismissals, according to an analysis of cases conducted by a think tank. The conservative-leaning America First Policy Institute says the arbitrator's rate of reinstatement is way higher than that of the Merit Systems Protection Board. For details, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to the director of the Institute's Center for American Freedom, James Shirk. First of all, tell us how you got to this data on, on reinstatements by arbitration And what do you precisely mean by a union arbitrator? So in the federal sector, if you're represented by a union, you have an option if your agency tries to fire you. You can appeal to the Merit Systems Protection Board, what we think of as these standard civil service protections. But you can also file a grievance under your union contract. It's either or. You can't do both. But if you uh, choose to, uh, you can file a grievance under the union contract. And your union can bring that instead to an arbitrator. Generally, the, these are private contractors. They work uh, with the private sector unions, with the private companies with nothing to do with unions, uh, as well as with the, the federal workforce. There's a, a master roster uh, uh, maintained by the Federal Mediation Conciliation Service, and the contracts pretty much all say uh, you'll get a list of names from this master uh, roster. People strike names, you know, union, agency, until one guy's left. That guy then is the arbitrator. And does the agency get a say in who the arbitrator is? Basically, the unions and the agencies have an equal say. Typically, you know, it varies from contract to contract, but typically they'll say, FMCS, give us seven names, and then each party takes a turn striking a name until you know, one's left. Uh, so it. both parties have uh, about an equal role in the selection of the arbitrators. The arbitrator then basically acts like a, an administrative law judge or a, another administrative adjudicator. They're not a federal employee. They're a contractor hired for just this case. But they you know, hear the arguments uh, from both sides, hand down a decision, And typically, that decision cannot be appealed by the agency. If the employee doesn't like it, they can appeal to the federal courts. But the agency, in almost all cases, cannot appeal a decision reinstating the employee. Got it. And you got access to a large number of cases. Tell us the number and how you got them. So we got uh, over 400 arbitration awards. Uh, Executive Order uh, 13836 required all uh, agencies to submit their arbitration agreements to the Office of uh, Personnel Management after they were handed down. Before then, agencies had not been you know, coordinating and tracking how the arbitrators were ruling you know, government-wide. The unions, of course, do it. They, they you know, keep track of how individual arbitrators rule. But there was no centralized government database. So uh, Executive Order 13836 said, send them all to OPM so OPM can take a look at what's going on. President Biden rescinded that executive order, uh, but OPM, under the Biden administration, has continued that policy. Uh, so agencies are continuing to sell, uh, send their awards to OPM. Uh, we sent in a Freedom of Information Act request. These are public records. Uh, we got a first tranche of uh, about 400 plus arbitration awards. So it's it's not all the awards that OPM has. Uh, we know they're continuing to work on producing them, but it's a pretty representative sample of several hundred arbitration awards dealing with a number of issues, dealing with suspensions, uh, dealing with removals, uh, and then dealing with issues that have nothing to do with you know, personal issues whatsoever. So it's, it's the first time. It's kind of exciting as a researcher that we now have this ability where with the Merit Systems Protection Board, they publish their cases. You know, there's an annual report, but there's been nothing to analyze how these arbitrators handle these cases. And then because of uh, the executive order uh, and the Freedom of Information Act, uh, we were able to do that. And what did you find? We find that arbitrators reinstate employees in about three-fifths of cases. So if you're an employee who gets uh, you know, laid off and appealed to the Merit Systems Protection Board, you have about uh, you know, a bit more than one chance in four uh, that MSPB will give you your job back. When you go to an arbitrator, it's about three chances in five. And that's a, a portion of that is where they say, all right, look, the guy did something wrong. He deserved to be punished, but we're going to mitigate the, the punishment to a suspension, give him his job back. 
and then other cases where they just overturn it entirely. We're speaking with James Shirk, director of the Center for American Freedom at the America First Policy Institute. Could there be a qualitative difference in the types of cases that go to MSPB versus those that go to arbitrators that could explain this discrepancy in reinstatement levels? Well, look, it's possible, right? I mean, the, the unions have a choice. Uh, you know, Do they bring a case to arbitration, uh, right? So if the union thinks the case is a sure loser, they're, they're probably not going to bring it. Uh, at the same time, the agencies, uh, generally, it's an exhaustive process. You know, anyone who's worked with the career staff in these agencies, you know, it's not like the supervisor's waking up one morning and you know, firing someone because he ate something wrong for breakfast. It is uh, about a six-month to a year process of gathering the evidence and you know, navigating all the steps necessary to fire someone. And so the agencies are taking a long, hard look and saying, can we justify this? Will it get overturned on appeal? I, in most cases, the employees get back pay. Uh, if you get reinstated, uh, you typically get back wages for the time you, you weren't employed. And that can be a huge financial hit to the agency on top of their litigation costs. In many cases, they have to pay the attorney's fees. So the agencies are pretty selective in who they fire. And it doesn't happen all that often. And then the, the unions also have the ability uh, to be selective uh, in the cases they bring to arbitration. Um, so like, uh, we can't rule that out. But what we do see is that when the unions bring it to arbitration, more often than not, the arbitrators say you get your job back. Interesting. And so what do we make of this information? Well, I, I think it explains why we see, or it's part of the reason why there's such a high degree of frustration among federal employees themselves uh, with performance and misconduct issues in the uh, federal workplace. Uh, you know, the government uh, spends a lot of money each year conducting the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey to you know, basically take the pulse of the federal workforce. What do you like? What don't you like? And consistently, year after year after year, uh, one of the, the two highest pain point questions, it's either number one or number two every year, is how satisfied are you with how your agency addresses poor performers and do they take actions when it's necessary if someone won't remove? Uh, like you just, every single year, you see this incredible dissatisfaction. And I think part of the reason is we've got this uh, the system where you know if you're in an agency and you try and fire someone, you're trying to, uh, especially if they're in the union, and then they can take it to arbitration. If the union grieves it, you know more likely than not, uh, the, the worker gets their job back, but it takes about a year and a half the agency is then on the hook for about a year and a half of back wages. Many cases, they uh, they also order attorney's fees. Uh, that it's just a, like, you've really got to have it up to your neck to be willing to put in that you know, much time and effort for something that, if the union grieves it, you know, you know it's more likely than not that the employee's coming back. And, you know, same thing with misconduct. I mean, we've seen all sorts of, uh, of cases. You're going through these awards. You just find some horrific cases. Did To take one example, there was an employee with the Department of Veterans Affairs who uh, got arrested uh, for and pled guilty to possessing uh, meth with the intent to distribute it. Uh, not surprising. That's not the kind of person that uh, VA wanted in there. The Yikes. And they fired him after he you know, pled guilty to the charges. And an arbitrator ordered him reinstated. And the, the grounds was, look, you didn't actually prove that you know him having this meth was any impediment to his job at VA. So therefore, you know, since there's not a job-related you know, connection, I mean, come on. What do you like? The guy got arrested and pled guilty. To intending to distribute meth. Those are people you don't want in the VA workforce, but the agency had to reinstate sure. them. Well, given that the union has the option and the discretion to go to arbitration, but the agency does not, could it be, and I hate to malign a whole profession, but it's good for business for the arbitrators if they tend to mitigate toward the union, toward the employee? I, I think that is one of the concerns, right? The, the unions, and especially before 13836, the unions are tracking how the arbitrators rule. And it's, it's a roster of several thousand arbitrators. But when the unions are going to arbitration hundreds of times or more a year, 
they start seeing the same names come up you know, over the list again and again and again. And sort of like Santa Claus, they're making a list and checking it twice. And if you're ruling consistently against them, uh, then they're going to strike your name off the list. And that's and look, that's the union's duty to their clients. I, I don't sort of fault them for acting that way. That's they have a duty of fair representation. They they should be doing that. But it creates an incentive for the arbitrators where they know if if I rule too often against the unions, I'm not going to get these uh, these jobs again. And historically, agencies have just not done the same thing, right? You know, any particular agency or subcomponent of an agency is only in arbitration maybe a few dozen times a year. They're not seeing the same names come up over and over again. And so the arbitrators, I, I think it, it creates a tendency for them uh, to want to try and split the baby. This is look, this is a longstanding complaint among federal career staff. You know, I, I served as a, a political appointee in the prior administration. I worked in civil service issues and spoke with a number of you know, senior career staff who worked in these HR roles. And I mean, look, these, you know, broadly speaking, are not people who are conservatives and sort of share my worldview, but also very professional and you know, want their agencies to run well. And the, the arbitrators, it was a constant complaint on their part that the arbitrators would just try and mitigate anything. They'd always try and split the baby. They never wanted to give the unions a complete loss. And that was actually hearing those anecdotal reports was the, the motivation you know, for, for this report, that we've created a system where the arbitrators have a financial incentive not yet yeah, to basically try and split the baby and not rule against the unions too frequently, at least if they want to keep getting the, the federal arbitration work. Now, look, their professional code of ethics is such that they're not supposed to do that. It, it says you're not supposed to issue compromise rulings so that you know parties will pick you in the future. And the law says they're supposed to be applying the same standards to the MSPB. But look, people are only human. You know, if you know that your paycheck sort of depends on you know, ruling a certain way, then it, it takes a lot of integrity to not rule that way, especially in a close case. And uh, I think it's it's just a problem. We've set up the system where the, the arbitrators deciding these cases do have a financial incentive uh, to try and split the baby, even if the facts of the situation, you know, say that you know, one party's in the right and one party's in the wrong. James Shirk is director of the Center for American Freedom at the America First Policy Institute. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.